Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. In the wake of the unrest and disruption that has exploded after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Breonna Taylor in Louisville, many believe those incidents illuminate a national legacy of racism and bigotry that has daily and historic echoes of the past. At Kentucky Humanities, we believe our role is bringing people from across the state together to listen understand and strengthen discussion and civil dialogue, matters of great significance. We do that today with a former board member of Kentucky Humanities, Aaron Thompson. Dr. Thompson is the president of the Kentucky Council on Post-Secondary Education. Before taking the helm of the CPE, Dr. Thompson served as interim president of Kentucky State University and as executive vice president, provost, and faculty member at Eastern Kentucky University. Dr. Thompson has authored or co-authored numerous books and peer-reviewed publications on diversity, cultural competence, first-year experience programs, retention, student success, and many other topics. In 2019, he was inducted into the Kentucky Civil Rights Hall of Fame. Dr. Thompson, welcome, and I want to begin uh, our podcast conversation this afternoon with a tweet that you wrote just this past weekend, and if you would read that for us, sir. Thank you, Bill. Good to, good to hear from you. The tweet starts out by saying, first of all, let me say that this tweet represents me and not the role I carry as the head of higher education in Kentucky, but clearly education matters to what I'm saying. I am in the at-risk category for COVID-19 based on health factors and race. As a matter of fact, at twice the risk to die. I was born at risk in the Appalachian Hills to a Black family in poverty without access to a hospital and follow-up health care for my mother and me. A non-licensed midwife assisted delivering me at home. Now, Black babies are at twice the risk for infant mortality. I was at risk educationally. Parents had little or no education, and I was in the demographic that was part of the desegregation of the schools. The gaps were huge for Blacks getting into high school and getting an equitable education in my day. Those gaps are still there. I was of that generation that came to college in the 1970s after the Civil Rights Movement. We were clearly at risk. We were fighting for an equitable college education. I am proud that we are closing some gaps in Kentucky higher ed, but we have such a long way to go. African Americans are at risk in education, income, wealth, health, living conditions, and just plain living. There is no excuse that can be given for the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmoud Arbery, and countless other senseless deaths. I am a sociologist that has dedicated his professional career to stop inequities and inequalities. I work with healthcare, teachers, corporations, 
and for over three decades with police officers training them in human relations, cultural competence, leadership, and so on. Now, I ask myself if my work and my struggle have been in vain. Well, the answer is no. I matter. You matter. So no more excuses. We have to get better. We all have to do our part to make this happen. We cannot do this through violence or sitting back and doing nothing. The solutions lie in the reasons we are at risk. We have to have better education and equitable education, better trained police officers, better living conditions, better health care, and realize that having any one of us at risk affects us all. I'm tired, and many are tired of being at risk. Racism doesn't have a place in a civilized society. Your job and my job is to make a civilized society more civil. Dr. Thompson, thanks uh, for your more than thoughtful words, for gaining the attention to this uh, national tragedy that we all suffer and have suffered for many, many uh, decades, if not generations. What was it about this incident that spurred you on to write these words? You know, it's not just about this incident. You know, first of all, we have 400 years of legacy of disenfranchisement. And I've lived it, obviously. And even though I'm a highly educated a person who's in a fairly good position to make systemic impact, uh, you know, what caused me to make this statement is clearly this. Even all my years of working to try to bring some sense of order and equality and equity into lots of years of disenfranchisement, you know, this one hit me as if to say to me and to others, okay, we've been working on this a long time. We've made improvements through enough. But it's crazy that we're still in this position, still not only having this level of conversation, but having a level of conversation that not many of us who are in leadership are coming around and saying, let's get solutions to this once and for all. Let's create systemic change. So my role in creating systemic change for higher education caused me to make the statement at the time I did make it when this these instances popped up. It seems like the key words in your statement in your tweet are at risk and you're tired you say you're tired of being at risk i am i'm tired of people just restating the problem yes we are at risk we need to be finding solutions to why this at risk moniker still is in place we we need to figure out why we're consistently making the statements that we will make again 10 years from now if we don't figure out how to make these at-risk monikers disappear. And it's not just by saying they're not there. I mean, that could be the solution some offers. But my argument is we're a bunch of smart people. We are probably going to find an antidote to COVID-19. We're smart people. We can figure out how to create more humanness in 
a humane society. I mean, this should be something we're called to do without even question. This idea that we are people and to figure out if all people belong in that category shouldn't be something that we keep putting aside decades after decades. Why haven't we figured it out before? I think we've taken corners, and I think there's a lot of people that feel like if they're not affected by it deep enough, true enough, complete enough, then they can sit back and have side conversations at the water cooler about what happened this weekend. My argument is we have to see this as affecting us all at a deeply personal level, because we have children, we have grandchildren, we have other people that will be having this discussion that will be affected by this. This is just not a minority problem. This is just not a problem of those categories that we judge to be at risk. Our society is at risk. Our culture is at risk. The richness of equality is at risk. If we're not willing to look at and address this in a systemic way, it won't happen overnight, no doubt. But creating a process, a plan, and an assessment procedure to make sure continuous improvement is in place, I think is what we're called to do around not just this one, I mean, any one instance, but around what has been systemic itself for many decades. You spoke of process. Give us your suggestion or idea about what that process should be. Sure. I mean, it's, I'm in education, Bill, so you know I want to address education. What we do know is that we have to have an appreciation and a value of diversity, diversity of people, diversity of thought, diversity of understanding, diversity of learning, diversity of religion, diversity of all those things. It's not just saying that we recognize that it exists, but we have to appreciate it and know that we become more whole when we look at all of those make up what is human. First of all, that's the first statement. How do we do this? Well, we first of all put it into what I call the fabric of our society. A piece of that fabric would lie in families. How do we help families understand how early childhood, as an example, to help their children to know and value people from all backgrounds? How do we put it in our overall K-12 system, our higher education system? We can operationalize this with you know, faculty development, staff development, in other words, everybody gets cultural competence training and you measure how well that they are doing in improving where they're at in dealing with people of all different backgrounds. But it's also has to go in our our curriculum. We have to actually recruit these staff members and faculty members based on their dispositions toward looking at everybody, looking at the person. Then we have to put it in our other institutions. For an example, we've got to create more jobs. We've got to figure out how not to imprison our black young men, but to educate them. We've got to train our police officers, not just train them one time, but that the training, the human relations training, the cultural competence training, all that has to be a part of their basic training. It has to be a part of their ongoing training, and they have to be measured on that and how well that they're doing that. As much as they need to learn how to be proficient in firearms, or how to do use of force. This, All of this matters to what we're trying to create. Now, you know, you've heard me say it before, that 
people with higher education tend to be more open and see the world in a more global way. They tend to be more creative. We've got to incorporate, though, Bill, in our curriculum, not just that curriculum that have one, one or two classes, but we've got to incorporate those essential skills, those employability skills, those humanities that they need to have and understand the global understanding that they need to have in place. Those social science skills, those communication skills, those abilities to think critically and act creatively, problem solve around situations that they may, in fact, be not known in the past, but have a level of creativity to understand and adjust and adapt. All of these have to be items that we see as important as science education, as important as technical education. These have to become a part of what I consider our human infrastructure. And we can do that. I mean, I can argue clearly that in the, in the corporations, for-profit corporations, in the big nonprofit worlds, they know they're going to have to serve a variety of people. So they figure out how, in fact, to serve those folks. So how do we move from a traditional teaching paradigm to a learner's paradigm, getting people where they're at and bringing them up? We have no excuses for gaps still, as an example. Do you believe we're in a a period of time where there are more have-nots than haves in your lifetime? You know, that's a good question. I've been asked that a lot here lately, and it's caused me to ponder because I grew up so poor, most of the people I knew had not or have not, right? And so what I see now is whether or not that is the case, you know, I'm not fully sure. I can give you demographics to show that is the case. But what I can show you more than anything else, that's growing. You know, that's really the question that you want to ask. Why is this gap still growing between the have and have nots? I mean, I'll give you an example. We know directly uh, higher education affects how much money that you make, how well you can build wealth, and, and I can have what kind of health you have, right? If you're going to be on welfare or not, as an example. My argument is that we have in Kentucky right now a declining college going rate from our high school seniors. Why is that, right? I mean, so all these indicators or what I call antecedent variables are what we should be talking about. So yes, as long as we have those indicators in place that are going down, then we're going to see the economic gap increase. We're going to see more racial gaps increase. We're going to see all those gaps, not just what we're talking about in achievement, but in the opportunity of being all that we can be, especially equal or equitable. Are we talking about decades of this kind of practice to turn this around? We're such a, an instant age today, and we want answers tomorrow instead of two weeks from tomorrow or a month from tomorrow. Can How quickly... And does it take incidents like we've seen in the last few days to cause attention to moving quickly? How can we turn this around in a way that that we become whole again? Great question. And the answer is actually a simple answer. 
It's not just one answer, but it is a simple set of answers. I call it the squeeze effect. We need to immediately put some short-term actions in place, such as create a cultural competence evaluation system that we actually train all of our employees, not just in our law enforcement, but in education in all the places to know how to work with people of different backgrounds and learn how to respect that. We can do that immediately, while at the same time put in an infrastructure approach. I mean, such as we build in the curriculum of all of our schools that people will have everything from civic education to civil education, how to work with people from different backgrounds. But over the long haul, I call it the squeeze effect. Over the long haul, you will see significant measurable outputs. And we need to actually hold people to the fire. The difference between diversity and cultural competence, let me be clear on that, because it's not just about race and gender and ethnicity. It's about all the aspects of dealing with how we grow in our society in a civil way. In other words, diversity is an aspect of the population, right? It's a maybe a demographic saying, but cultural competence is the ability to measure how well we are reacting and interacting with those. And it creates a continuous improvement model. If we can measure how well we are doing this, then we can continually put educational practices in place that would increase the long-term effect. So my argument is we have a solution. Now, the other part of this conversation is about leadership. We have to take leadership here to do this. We have to be willing to change the things that hasn't worked in the past, that haven't worked in the past. If we are still using practices and we say, let's do that again, when we haven't seen long-term systemic impact, then we need to move away from that and spend our money in places that we can have that. Do do you think, uh, Dr. Thompson, Aaron, that the incidences that are are most uh, frequent are are the the ones that have happened in just the last few days? I'm talking about uh, George Floyd in Minnesota and Breonna Taylor. Um, but there have been so many others. There's a long list of those. Have those been created by racism? Sure. For people not to believe that racism exists, it may not be explicit racism. But in our society, we have developed scenarios, situations, and institutional practices that allow it to exist from within without recognizing. Some people call it implicit bias. And that's fine. What we know is that there is a, I mean, if you have, if you have this many years of slavery and Jim Crow laws and disenfranchisement, it just doesn't disappear, Bill, because we wish it away. You know, it's there. And once again, the fabric, that's why we have to address it from a fabric uh, situation. So yes, now whether or not a person is thinking that they're being racist when that happens is one thing. The bottom line is it's happening and it's happening at a significant level to people of color and to men of color. So there's something there. And if it continues to happen, if you look at the gaps that continue to happen out of our schools, and now once again, teachers are some of the most important people in the world to me, and I love them. I'm one of them. You know, 
without a doubt, teachers matter in the conversation of creating a more equitable solution to this. So how do we give them the training and, and how do we give them the resources to do that? Same with police officers. I love working with police officers. We cannot have a civil society without a modern-day civil police force. But they need to be trained. We need to weed people in with the dispositions and, and the knowledge that they want to be police officers to help the people out. It's not just about enforcement. It's about safety and protection. So all of these are items that I think if we don't move our practice toward getting people in that want to be a part of the solution, then we're going to continually have this. But yeah, we can't deny racism doesn't exist. We can't deny sexism doesn't exist. You know, we can't deny privilege doesn't exist. It just does. Aaron, you know, it's been said many times that, uh, that young children who are growing up uh, in America when they are born and when they're infants and when they're two or three and five years old, they haven't been taught hate. They haven't learned racism unless they've observed it in their home and seen it from their parents or grandparents or guardians. How does, as a sociologist, how does one learn to hate the way we see hate and bigotry displayed today. Absolutely. And hate can come in all forms and all colors. Let me be clear. And what I do know is that it is not an innate characteristic. People aren't born with it. It's a socialized characteristic. It's the ability to start stating who's good and who's bad and why they're good and why they're bad. And we have developed that even in our media scenarios. And now more than ever, media can help us to get out of this. It's the idea about saying, let's accept what history has taught us and think that is good. In fact, when it wasn't good, Jim Crow laws were not good, right? Slavery wasn't good. The idea that if you use any characteristic then to affect any other population unfairly, that can't be good. So if we're continually doing that in our institutional process, that's not good. So absolutely, we've got to create better parent education. We've got to create all kinds of different uh, institutional understanding about how then do we purposefully, if we're doing it unknowingly, and many most people are, by the way, I don't think most people run out and say, let me do this. Let me create hate. But if we're doing it, then we've got to give a way or a set of instructions to help people to know what to say and how to say it. And that's where we just can't blame. Victims happen everywhere here, right? I mean, for an example, I say, I tell people around the street, don't loot. You're actually buying into what many people think that you are. You know, don't burn. I understand you're frustrated. Let's figure out how to actually voice that frustration in a way that everybody listens and not just a few. So the idea that we have to also learn how not to buy in to the stereotype that many people may have for us. And I refuse to be any more than I can be 
but I can be something big. And that's what we need to have all of our children at a very young age understand, and that it doesn't matter what color their skin or what gender they are or what sexual orientation that they are, that in fact they have a lot to offer for this society to be everything it can be. Finally, Aaron, is there a story that you can recall from your youth, from your growing up, that uh, served to be a lesson for you? Uh, maybe it began as something unfair and and uh, race-based, that the uh, way you were treated, but you learned from it and became the the great person that you are today in, in the field uh, that you're in and in, in life? Well, I'll give you two quick ones. There's a ton, Bill. I know we don't have time for that, but I'll give you two quick ones. When, I, when we were integrated into the schools, I was in the fourth grade. And we were integrated. And you have to remember, I grew up in the hills of Kentucky, and many of my peers, you know, they stopped after eighth grade. But I was in the fourth grade, and I was beaten up a lot during that time. Names were called. Uh, people tried to protect me on the bus so I wouldn't get beaten up. It was not good. And I remember going to my father, who was illiterate. On a June day, it was like when school was almost out. And I told my father, I said, Daddy, I'm quitting school. He looked at me and he said, why, son? I said, because, Daddy, I, I'm getting beaten up every day and I'm scared. And he looked at me, and this was a very nonviolent person although his house had been set on fire three or four times by people trying to run him out of the area he was in, he had had tons of time to understand what racism really was. But he said, there's two things worth fighting for. He said, one is your family, and the other thing is your education. He said, no matter what, don't let them take this away from you, and you do something about it. This was a person that could not read nor write. And he taught me a huge lesson in education and the value of education. That's why I push it hard now. The second story has to do a lot with a lot of the negative things that happened to me as I was going through school. The names that were called to me when I was in high school, but really just a lot of things that I had to deal with just to make it through. And this was in the 70s, and I wanted to go to college. And I remember telling one of my teachers in High school, you know, I'm a senior, and I had done pretty good in high school. I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't too bad. And, and I remember telling this guy who was my mentor, and I know he loved me with all of his heart because he did a lot to help me to be successful in school. And I remember telling him I wanted to go to college. Now, you have to understand, not a lot for my class went to college, period. And, and I said, I want to go to college. And he looked at me, and he says, why? why don't you want to get a job and help your family? I said, but I want to go to college. He said, why? And I didn't know the reason why, but I knew why I had to. I knew what I had and I wanted something more. And he looked at me and he was confused because he had never seen that many people of color go to college. So his job was to help me to get a good job. But that was a enforcement and a reinforcement why I should go to college. So I tell people that things come to you in two ways. One is this very positive people are helping you, guiding you, mentoring you, and giving you direction and showing you all the bits and pieces you need to have. And the other is when they're trying to keep you from doing it. 
both can serve as a motivation. And that's the way I see the world now. These items that I'm seeing now is a motivation for all of us leaders to come together and look for a solution, both short-term and long-term, and not be shy about it. We're, I mean, to, to deny that it's, these things aren't real, or even some of the causes, keeps us from actually producing the kind of outputs that we really need for our society. And this America and this Kentucky that you know I love so well. So I'm called to do that, but those were the yesterday's lessons that taught me about today. And Aaron, uh, you've already stated this, but you do think uh, the humanities uh, has a role in uh, showing uh, the state and, and America uh, a way forward, uh, it, a platform uh, for civil discussion, a, a forum for uh, a discussion of the issues. Um, you believe in the humanities, do you not? Oh, it's crucial, Bill. Not only do I believe in it, I'm not just saying it has a role. I'm saying it's crucial as a primary motivator for us to actually dig into. Our history can tell us a lot about our future. And the way we don't cover that history up, but to tell the history. I talk about my Appalachian heritage in a very positive way, even though I didn't experience all positives in Appalachia. But it taught me, it helped me to understand how to look at the world, the arts, the beauty, the way to think outside my comfort zone, the way to accept things I don't understand, but know that it has something to teach me. These are the humanities. These are the things that make us human. So when you look at what it is to be human, it is to understand that you have failures, no doubt. It is to understand that you need to self-actualize and get better. But you can't do that without that holistic element that I call the humanities. You can't do that without that primary motivator to look at ourselves from within ourselves, which are the humanities. So I think they're more than a role. I think they're crucial in the way that we need to be advancing what we do, not just in education, but in life. Dr. Aaron Thompson, the president of the Council on Post-Secondary Education in Kentucky, a former board member of Kentucky Humanities and a friend and uh, well-spoken and thoughtful uh, conversation uh, today. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for doing what you do and the status you bring to the Humanities Council and the needs that are there still for our Kentucky to know the richness of what you have to offer. Thank you, sir. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.